are listening to a sermon from the pulpit of Redeemer Church, a PCA congregation in Hudson, Ohio. For more information, visit us at RedeemerOhio.org. As we continue our worship, we turn now to our sermon text this evening, which is from the book of Titus. Titus, we are in chapter 3, and it is on page 999 of your pew Bibles, Titus chapter 3. And in some ways, we can say what this book is, the question this book is answering is, what are the necessary foundational building blocks for the church? Because you remember, Paul's writing to Titus, who is left on the island of Crete, who is nurturing the very young churches there, likely very small churches there. And so Paul is instructing Titus how to care for these small, these new, these tender churches. What are the necessary foundational building blocks for the church? And we've seen the importance of church government as elders were appointed. We've seen the importance of teaching what is true. And we see the importance of living as a Christian. So we come to these Two verses, verses 8 and 9 in chapter 3, and we'll read those at this point. So hear now the word of the Lord from Titus chapter 3, verses 8 and 9. The saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people, but... Avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. Grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. I think most of us have had an experience of attempting to pull weeds. You go outside and see how they've overrun your flower bed, and so you go to begin to pull the weeds And we know we have to be very careful to pull up not just the weeds that are showing above ground, but we have to pull out the roots. Because if you know, if you just get the weed that's above ground, it's going to come back. The roots are still there. The roots are still strong. So we have to unroot it to get rid of the weeds. Roots are important for the life of all plant life. And this is a common image for Christianity, for thinking about our faith. We have good roots. We have to have good roots that lead to good fruit. And here, particularly in this passage, our call to be devoted to good works, it begins with the call to be faithful in doctrine, faithful to what Scripture teaches. And so we're just going to look at two things this evening in these two verses. First is the root, which is doctrine, what we believe, what God has revealed of himself to us. And then second is the fruit, or the works that we are called to do in the world. So we'll look at the root, doctrine, and fruit, works. We'll be going back and forth between verses 8 and 9 for both of these points. So let's first consider the root, which Paul speaks of here. In verses 8 and verses 9, he is talking about doctrine, why it's important. And he first says in verse 8 at the beginning, this saying is trustworthy. And I want you to insist on these 
things. And this, this is the saying he's speaking of. These things that he's referring to come back to what we spoke of last time, particularly verses four through seven. And so Paul is calling us to a commitment to ruthlessly biblical doctrine. The saying is trustworthy that he just laid out for us. And we alluded to this last time. But if you remember what is in verses four through seven, it's the riches of our faith. It's a very summary form of the glory of Christ. This saying is trustworthy. We saw that it's possibly even a creed, whether Paul created it himself as a creed or whether it was one that was floating around the churches already, we don't know. But it's very possibly a creed because of its compact nature, the richness of it. It's very intentionally crafted. And we see in these verses that Paul proclaims, it is God who saves us. Salvation comes from the Lord. It's not something we do. And it's not even because something we've done in righteousness, but it's because of his mercy. Our salvation is Trinitarian. It is the Holy Spirit who's made us new. We haven't made ourselves new. We haven't created our own faith. It is the Spirit who's done this and the Spirit who's working in us to renew us every day of our lives. He talks about justification. The foundation of our salvation is that declaration of righteousness. You are righteous in God's sight because of Christ. You're forgiven because of his sacrifice. And the aim of our whole salvation is this hope of eternal life. We're heirs. We have all the promises of God that will be ours. And indeed, in a way, are ours today. This saying is trustworthy. These doctrines are true. These doctrines are worth trusting in, or at least trusting in the one who's given those truths to us. This is trustworthy. And this is against those Cretan, Cretan gods. You remember we talked about earlier in this book that the Cretan gods were well known for being liars, for manipulating, for being one way, one day, another way, another day. You never knew where they stood. But Paul says, this God is trustworthy. This God is true. This God will not change his mind. What is true today will be true tomorrow. This saying is trustworthy. It's reflecting what Paul wrote earlier in chapter one, verse two, speaks of the God who never lies. What he says is trustworthy. What he says is true. And Paul is calling Titus to insist on these things. I want you to insist on these things, he says. These things, these doctrines, these core truths of salvation and who God is, you must insist on them. This is a very strong word. This isn't simply teach these things. It's insisting, saying there's no alternate view acceptable in the church. These things are so critically important. Every Christian must be rooted in these biblical doctrines. They are that important. The pastor must insist on it. it. Says every one of the church must believe these things. It's important for your own spiritual well-being. So Paul is calling Titus to say these things are the core of your pastoral ministry. This is what you're to focus on, that God's people would know these promises, these truths, these realities about God and sin and redemption in Christ. What are those majors we're to major in as a church? It is those doctrines that are revealed in scripture for us. The pastor is called to keep his eye on God, the work of Christ, the purpose of the cross, our new heart given by the Holy Spirit, our eternal hope, and the kind of life that flows out of this. You may have heard P. 
People talk about a philosophy of ministry. And you know what that means? Talk about, pastors will often talk about philosophy of ministry, and this church's philosophy of ministry might be different from this one. What it's getting at is how do you do ministry and what's your emphasis and your focus? I think Paul gives us a very clear philosophy of ministry here. The church is to insist that we all understand and know and cherish these things. Who is our God? What kind of salvation he has wrought for us? The glory of Christ. And you might wonder why we at Redeemer always talk about this. Why do we always talk about Jesus? Why do we always talk about salvation? Why do we always want non-believers to come to Christ? Why do we call us to come to the cross over and over and over again? Because we're called to insist upon them. We all must together grow up in these rich doctrines, who God is. These are the marching orders for the church. One error that this passage is rejecting is an error that says this. You may have heard this before. Christianity is about how we live, not about what we believe. Have you heard Christians talking about this before? This was prominent 100 years ago in the Presbyterian church. 100 years ago, Christians were saying, well, it doesn't really matter what you believe. If you believe in the inerrancy of scripture, good for you. But if not, that's fine. You may believe in the virgin birth, but if not, that's fine. You may believe in miracles, but if not, that's fine. Because anybody who wants to be called a Christian should be called a Christian. Because Christianity is about how we live our lives. It does not matter what we believe. But no, Paul says that is not true. Doctrine is important. What we believe is important. We are going to insist upon it. Not that we all have to be seminary professors. Not that we all have to have doctorates in theology. But we must all know simple things. The Apostles' Creed, the Nicene Creed, the basics of our confession to know these important teachings of Scripture. We have to take what Paul is saying and hold on to it. We need to understand and cherish it because we are trusting in God when we do that. Anti-doctrinalism has no place in Christianity. So this is one extreme, one error that Paul is working against here. Anti-doctrinalism has no place in the church, but there's another error on the other side. And so we come to verse nine, the beginning of verse nine, where he says, but avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law. Here's another error that Paul's rejecting here. It says this, Christianity is about parsing out every slightest hint of a doctrine in scripture or even doctrines that don't arise by good and necessary consequence from scripture. And when others don't agree with me, then I'm gonna condemn them. This is not correct. This is what I'll call a hyper-doctrinalist. It's somebody who cares about more than the, the, the essentials, the, the good and those things that arise from Scripture by good and necessary consequence. Those who have their own pet projects, those who are creating controversies just to come out on top. This is hyper-doctrinalism that Paul condemns. These foolish controversies, that's what he's speaking of. People stirring up controversies in the church, these foolish things. Genealogies. We don't know exactly what this is speaking of, but likely it has some connection to Old Testament genealogies and individuals were trying to find superior standing in the church by tying their family lineage in into these Old Testament genealogies. 
So they're arguing about genealogies, creating dissensions and these quarrels about the law. The law is good. We need to understand God's word. We need to understand the law of the Old Testament. Absolutely. But they began quarreling about it. They they came to the point where they made things that are not as important, the ultimate things. Or they put things that, that are not clearly revealed in scripture on a pedestal and said, if you don't believe this, you are wrong and a second class Christian. Deuteronomy 29, 29 says this. The secret things belong to the Lord, our God. But the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever that we may do all the words of this law. It says there are things that God has not revealed. There are some things we cannot know. There are things that God has not in his wisdom revealed to us. And we ought not press too far in these things. But it appears like people here in Crete were trying to do that. Instead of the second part of Deuteronomy 29, 29, The things that are revealed belong to us and our children forever that we may do all the words of the law. The things that are revealed are for us to dive as deeply as we possibly can into. Who is Jesus? Oh, we can spend a lifetime considering that. What has he done for us? Oh, all the days of our life could be spent meditating on the work of our Savior. These are the things that we are to dive into and care about. I don't know if this is apocryphal or not, but it's often said that Deuteronomy 29, 29 was John Calvin's favorite verse. Maybe that's true, I don't know, but I do appreciate oftentimes as you're reading him, he'll say, you know what? People pry into this issue, the scripture doesn't reveal it, so I'm gonna stop here and we're not going any further. Let's move on. And he says about Deuteronomy 29, 29, he says this, it's a remarkable passage and especially deserving of our observation. For by it, audacity and excessive curiosity are condemned, whilst pious minds are aroused to be zealous in seeking instruction. These are the two sides here, the audacity and excessive curiosity that some have, who are departing from the central cores of the faith, and they care more about their pet projects than they do about Christ himself. So that's condemned, but pious minds are aroused to be zealous in seeking instruction. Don't create, try to create a name for yourself on theological issues that are not clearly spelled out in scripture. These hyper-doctrinalists are just as wrong as the anti-doctrinalists. They make faith all about themselves and what they do and what they understand instead of it being about God's glory and God's salvation of sinners. Doctrine is good, but doctrine does not have at its end doctrine. Doctrine has at its end the glory of God. So the question that always arises is what are the doctrines that we fight for, that we insist upon, and what fighting is merely foolish controversies or dissensions? How do we know? Am I diving too deeply in something that doesn't matter, that I shouldn't care about, that God hasn't revealed? And I think it's difficult probably to make a universal rule of application here, but I'll just say one place to start is that we ought to stand on the shoulders of those who've come before us. We ought to dive deeply into what those who've come before us have thought was central and important. Those doctrines or those documents that have stood the test of time expounding scripture for us. Those creeds that I mentioned earlier, the Apostles' Creed, the Nicene Creed, Athanasius, Athanasius Creed. These things should revel in and enjoy 
And even things like the, the Westminster Standards, they stood the test of time as expounding for us those things that are taught most clearly in Scripture. Not that creeds are infallible, but they are guideposts to help us know what is worth fighting for. But here's ultimately what it is, and I said this a minute ago. Is your doctrine revealing and exposing the glory of God? Or is your doctrine trying to puff you up and make you proud? That's ultimately our litmus test. But it's difficult, and we ought to do this together in community to know what is worth fighting for, what is worth insisting upon, and what fighting is merely foolish controversies or dissensions. So we have the root, the doctrine, these things that we are taught, these things that we must insist upon and hold to. But let's consider the fruit, the works that arise out of it. You may have heard the phrase before, orthodoxy leads to orthopraxy. You heard this? Ortho is, is Greek word meaning right or correct or healthy. And then you have orthodoxy. Doxy is a Greek word that means opinion or a judgment. So right opinion, right judgment, right interpretation leads to orthopraxy. Praxy means practice and living. So right doctrine leads to right practice. And this is true. This is important. Scripture bears this out over and over and over. We who, Paul says in verse 8, we who believe in God are to be careful to devote ourselves to good works. This good works is an important phrase in Titus. I've said this several times, but it comes up over and over and over. Good works is important for us. And it's the way we operate in the world, obedient to God, seeking to serve our neighbors. That's simply what it is. We're living a life obedient to God to serve our neighbors. That is the good works that Paul speaks of. And this good works flows out of good doctrine. Look back at verse three. We made this point when we were here, but let's look back at it again. Verse three has this word for, and it's a, it's verse three is explaining why we do verses one and two. So Titus three verses one and two is a reminder to the God's people to submit to government. It's a reminder to not be, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle. So these commands, how do we live the Christian life? What do good works look like? Verses one and two is one place to, to understand that. And then verse three has four. We're to live this way for or because, and he goes on to expound our sinfulness and God's salvation. He goes on to show us the doctrinal reasons we are to live this way. He says, remember, you were once a sinner. Therefore, be gracious and kind to sinners, to the world around you. So it is this doctrine of our salvation, the doctrine of who God is, what he's done for us, that leads us to live a life of good works. And this is why we were saved. We, we read in Ephesians 2, we were saved for good works. So we are called to go and love our neighbor. We are to be, we are to, in our lives, be careful to devote ourselves to these things. Careful, right? This is something that we intentionally plan. We plan to do good works. We intentionally order our lives so that we can care for others and serve others, whether that's in the home, your children, whether that's you're out of the home and your parents are, are aging, caring for them. Whether that's your neighbor around you, whatever it is, wherever you are in life, you're called to be intentionally serving others with good works. This is why we were saved. And indeed, at the end of verse eight, he says, this is excellent. These things are excellent and profitable for people. Oftentimes you talk about 
especially this, this time of year where there's graduations and graduation speeches and taught to, people are told to go out and to change the world and you know, these big pep talks at graduations. Do you want to have an impact on the world? Do you want to change the world? I'm going to tell you something. Start with good theology. Start with understanding who God is. Start with understanding what his creation is. Start with understanding how sin entered the world and how Christ came to redeem you from the sin which you were in bondage to. Start with good theology if you want to impact the world. Know your Bible, know your God, know your salvation, know you're a sinner saved by God's grace. Know that you're an adopted child of God. And then what in light of this, you will be able to pursue that which is good for your neighbors. In light of this, you'll be able to truly love your neighbor as yourself. You will be a blessing to the world. Faithful Christian service to the world, a faithful Christian impact on the world usually is not going to be some big culture-shifting, culture-changing impact. It's not earth-shattering, huge stuff. But it's the little, basic, daily ways that you care for your children or your parents or your neighbors, your coworkers, or your friends. This is the kind of good works that we are called to to be a blessing, to be excellent and profitable for all people. And so this good doctrine leads to good works, but we have the opposite that is true as well. Heterodoxy leads to heteropraxy. Heteros, Greek word for other. So the other doctrine leads to other works. It's implying bad doctrine leads to bad practice. And we see this in the end of verse 9. These, these, all these things, these foolish controversies, they are unprofitable and worthless. This kind of dissension and concern for matters beyond Scripture is inherently divisive. And even more, it is unprofitable and it is worthless. It is damaging not only to yourself, but to others. So, do you want to drag other people down? And don't care about doctrine. Or care about doctrine that's not found in Scripture care about doctrine that the Bible doesn't care about, that God has not revealed to us. But do you want to build others up? Care about Christ. Care about who he has revealed himself to be. Make Christ and all that scripture says about him the most important thing to you. And you will not be able to help but build others up and to care for them, to encourage them. One quick caveat here. Not all sin arises from bad theology. Just because somebody falls in a serious moral failing or serious sin, it is not necessarily a result of bad theology. It is a result of the world and the flesh and the devil pressing upon us and tempting us and causing us to stumble and sin. So we must be careful. When somebody falls in sin, we must not immediately turn to condemn their theology for it. But we must be on guard ourselves that we would not be fall prey to temptation. Well, to conclude here, I think we're at an important cultural moment. And I think in this cultural moment, we are tempted to get off course in one of two directions. These two directions we've spoken of. First, we're tempted to be anti-doctrinalists because we want to placate and appease the world with our lives. We want the world to think we're attractive and we want to be winsome and, and, and minimize the offensive truths of Christianity. 
We want to be anti-doctrinalists in some way. And if we do this and we follow this road, we will lose a truly biblical theology. And ultimately, we're going to lose the gospel itself because we will lose Christ himself. But also in this cultural moment, I think we are tempted to be hyper-doctrinalists as well. And I think some of these hyper-doctrinalists out there in the church today are so concerned about the errors of the world that they lose sight of the main thing. All they care about is critiquing the world, critiquing the culture, and they lose sight of Christ himself. And it is Christ that builds us up. It is looking to him that gives us strength for the journey. And so they're distracted as hyper-doctrinalists, losing sight of the main thing. Brothers, Sisters, I want to insist on these things with us. That it is Jesus Christ who died and rose for our sins. That it is the Holy Spirit who is alive and dwelling in us. We are new creation now in Christ. So let us rejoice in these things. And yes, we care about the world. Yes, we want to go out and be zealous for good works. And we should be. But the main things are that which have been clearly revealed to us. We cannot proclaim anything other than the supremacy and grace of Christ. It is him we proclaim because he is what we need for life and for godliness. Thank you for listening. For more information or to connect with us, visit us at RedeemerOhio.org.